Are you attending Shop Talk? If you are, I hope that you're ready for the AI-driven future of commerce. If not, you can get ready by joining us and our friends from IM Digital, a leading retail experience agency, to learn about the future of commerce. You can join their March 18th event taking place at Shop Talk exclusively with your invite from Future Commerce. Find out more today at events.imdigital.com. Today on Visions. I haven't encountered a technology, much less an AI, that has stunned me to the degree that the output of Dali 2 works of art have. Um, Incredible, incredible stuff. Um, And in a way, because it's generative and it's not, you know, it's not super sharp and precise, it's not meant to be. Some of the images, it's, it's as if you're looking into someone's mind while they're having a dream. Welcome to Visions. Visions is an annual audiovisual trends report that covers the changes in culture and commerce. This series is meant to be a companion guide to our 100-page report. Download and follow along at visions.report. Episode 4. Our Shitty Robot Future. Hi, I'm Philip. It has been said that the measure of a man is what he does with power. If you want to know our truest, basest selves, download your voice recordings from your Amazon Alexa devices. When it comes to dealing with assistants and robots, our basest and most vile instincts take over. Frustration, anger, even rage, the way that we treat robots reveals more about us than we would care to admit. So what then do we say to a future that is even more autonomous than today? Our semi-autonomous future will be filled with side-glancing frustration at a world that almost works, but not quite the way that we had hoped. The more that robots can do, the more opportunity that there is for them to fail at our expectations. On today's episode, we go live to the Vision Summit in West Palm Beach, Florida, and we ask the question, What does it say about us and how we treat the inhuman? And is that a reflection of our truest self? I remember the first Roomba I bought, and I thought, really, is that the most efficient path that it can take uh, around around the living room? We have so much of these types of promises of this future, uh, the Jetsons setting the standard for the world that we all live in. And for the most part, we live in that world now. Like all of those things, autonomous cars, it's... It all is there, but it doesn't work quite all the way. And still, there seems to be sort of latent concerns about what this all means in in the future that we're building. So that's really the topic here. We call it our shitty robot future. Um, uh, But when we actually started doing the research and we got into it, we actually teased out a bunch of really interesting themes. So let's kind of dive into it here today. Uh, I think the biggest thing that is on everyone's mind is, you know, is the amount of automation and machine learning and AI and uh, even robotics that we're implementing in the world displacing people's jobs and having a human impact? I'm far from being qualified to talk about the uh, the macroeconomic sure. factors of of whether it's in fact uh, getting rid of jobs and, and and being a net negative. Mike Lackman, CEO of Trade Coffee. What I could say is, it's creating some dynamics where. Um, a much smaller number of people can drive outcomes with a much larger number of dollars. And so I think if we're not really effective at promoting financial literacy and asking some big questions about what's different looking 20 years ahead from what the last 20 years were like, then there's going to be some collateral damage in the system that I think is really bad for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And so I think, again, to be somewhat parochial in the way that we manage things at our company, um, we're very, very big on financial literacy. We try really hard to be a promise-keeping company. And we try to then be very clear about what the hazards are with that. And when we hire people, we try really hard to almost convince them not to come based on all the good, bad, and ugly of what's involved in trying to run a business that isn't guaranteed to succeed yet and is trying to do something that we believe to be somewhat exceptional. So I think when you look at those factors, it should be a force for good if it's managed properly. And there's a million ways we can screw it up mm. if we're not really careful. 
this comes out all the time, that you have uh, inherent biases that are baked into these types of uh, uh, systems, in particular AI. Um, and it seems that, especially in the space, in the world that you occupy, there's a lot of venture you know, that's uh, uh, making big bets on the way that AI and machine learning are, are going to shape the future that we'll all have to inherit. Um, what are your thoughts just broadly on, you know, a future that is more biased uh, because we're the ones building it? Yeah, it is a question about, can I see the engineering team that is building this product? Because I want to make sure that everything about them that is going into this machine learning project is applicable beyond them and representative of the population of, uh, at whole, especially when it comes to things like uh, computer vision, voice identification, and things like that. Web3 venture firm chief brand officer, Michael Miraflor. Even more so, I mean, to, to kind of take a step back, uh, you know, when it comes to automation, you know, when I, when I look at a business plan or if I'm evaluating a business, it, I, I pause when I hear that automation is part of the initial business plan, right? Um, because you can automate things to make them more efficient, but you have to know how to do it well in the first place with a certain level of uh, agency and authority and uh, getting your hands dirty with it, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think we're getting to the point with some businesses and maybe industries where we might be losing a certain amount of knowledge about how to do something from a tradecraft perspective because we've focused so hard on automating our way out of these otherwise manual things uh, to the point where after that older generation that used to do it more manually retires, um, you know, the generation in charge will literally not know how to do it. They, don't, they, don't know how, they won't know how to, to use an analogy, they won't know how to pop an engine and, 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 and uh, change the oil. Right. Um, and, and it sounds like I'm talking about like, you know, like, like woodwork or uh, manual labor type stuff. But I think this applies to, um, you know, digital backend systems as well. Right. Like there's there's an entire generation I know of who uh, are steeped in the ad tech, martech world that never had to get their hands dirty with learning how to do the basics of like ad trafficking, which mm. no one wants to do. But sometimes you have to learn the mechanics um, and dynamics of those those things from both a, a, a systems level, but also like a interpersonal level, like how it actually works throughout the company, uh, to be able to approve, improve upon that later with a certain level of automation. Um, and, and I hate to sound like this is a, like a, a sweeping generality, but I've seen instances of this throughout my career, and it, it's it's more often than I'm seeing it more often than not. And I, I love that you're pointing that out. I think there are some examples of automation that are particularly well suited to circumstances where you have a very, very high speed and low variable cost of value exploration. Um, match three gaming optimization AI, right? Like, cool. Like uh, very quickly, I'm watching people play this game and I can tell which version of the gameplay is going to make people more or less engaged. And I can iterate through that at dramatic speed. AI makes a lot of sense in terms of trying to discover what things are worth iterating on. Mm. You then try to apply that to physical commerce in some circumstances. Yeah. You look at a business like ours where we're going to try to send someone coffee 20 to 50 times a year. Any one of those that goes wrong can offset a half of two, two to three years of value for that customer. So the cost of value exploration is extraordinarily expensive if you're going to iterate, test, and learn through each one of those customers. Mm. And so I think, uh, I think to the point you're making, if you're not really connected to those user stories with some pretty reasonably grounded hypotheses along the lines of when you meet a merchant who knows their customer and they go like, I just don't think anyone's going to buy those shoes. I don't need a report to tell me that. There's still some wisdom for that. And I think if you kind of, excoriate that from the working population in some of these companies from the beginning, you're not going to introduce enough of the good ideas into those rock tumblers because mm -hmm. there's just too much cost yeah. to creating the kind of uh, um, statistically significant data sets on some of these lower velocity problems that we all have to solve if we all analogize ourselves to some of the things that are simpler to understand, like what's Google doing with the most common search terms kind of stuff. We undervalue that wisdom to your, to your point. Totally. Yeah. From Star Trek to the Jetsons, it would seem that humanity builds the future as predicted by science fiction. Robots, digital assistants, autonomous vehicles, they are all subservient to our every want and need. iPads, tricorders, driverless cars, and even androids. Does science fiction predict our future, or do we build the future in subconscious response 
to popular entertainment. From the published study Race, Class, and Rosie the Robot, a critical study of the Jetsons by Aaron Burrell, Ph.D., Aaron writes, Those positions consistently filled by persons of color in 1960s America, we see Rosie fulfilling a working-class service role in the Jetsons universe. But Rosie also manages to display core elements of humanity, including emotional range and real-time decision-making, which reminds the viewers that they are no less human than other characters. From The Vision Report. I think another way to look at this in in futurism is that we build the future that we believe should exist, right? We're, uh, we, we've grown up watching it on TV. Uh, we, we see it on, on, uh, read it in science fiction novels. Uh, often we may not ask ourselves the questions is, is that world one that's equitable or worth having? Mm -hmm. But think about that for a second, right? We, what are some of those things that we're bringing into being or what we're building in the world that, you know, uh, uh, are laden with our biases. One thing could be just the way we design websites. You know, they are inherently uh, probably inaccessible from the start. Um, so, so what are ways that we can combat that? Uh, is that an organizational shift? Is that an organizational change? Or does that begin with the person? I mean, I can start maybe by trying to object to the premise that you started your, oh, your, I love your question with, which was that we create this future that, that we intend to want to live in. And if you take... Um, an evolutionary example. Um, you don't evolve, uh, an organism doesn't evolve to have the traits that would be best for the organism, right? If, if, a, if a bird or a wasp or something is going to evolve, it could evolve a machine gun on its back to fight <laughs> off its predators. That would be the best thing for it. It's not going to happen. You're going to evolve things that are sequentially pragmatic and that can evolve one step at a time sequentially from the places that were happening naturally in that organism's journey. So an insect yeah. gets wings because it had a heat diffusion system that eventually pragmatically was close enough to start to create something that would become wings as opposed to jet engines when it would take it up and off the ground. Like, and so I think when you look at the way that we're going to uh, adapt to these things, the answer for how we should do them in a way that's ethically grounded should probably be rooted in the where were we two, three, four years ago? Where will we be in five years? How do we think about that? Because that's going to be a lot more pragmatic than some oh, yeah, of the, way more pragmatic. Than, than some of the, like, what if we actually step function change to something that doesn't even resemble where we currently are. Right, right. In that way, that resembles the the break fast and, or move fast, sorry, move fast and break things mentality of, like, let's just ship, let's get it out there, let's see how end users interact with it, and we will fix the deficiencies over time. But net-net, we will be delivering value out in the marketplace. I'm not so sure that holds mm -hmm. anymore. And I think from a, you know, from a consumer perspective, we've seen step changes in technology, like net new things uh, be put out there into the world to uh, initial you know, excitement and a certain level of satisfaction by consumers. Sure. And then sure. kind of like you know, kind of drifted off in, in different directions or kind of like stalled, like, like voice is a great example, right? Like recall, was it 2015, 16 when, um, Alexa and, 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 um, Google home was kind of put out there in the marketplace. And, uh, the developer community was like really excited about yeah. developing applications. Uh, and there were grants aplenty and yeah. people, you know, put a lot of headspace and thought leadership behind the possibilities of what that could become. Uh, and here we are like what, half a decade later, and it's pretty much, and, and, and this is, you know, a, a limitation of the algorithms and maybe the devices and whatever, but um, a lot of it is being driven by not necessarily lack of consumer demand, but just the reality that there are only so many things that you want to do from a computational perspective as an end user by using your voice, right? Like I'm never going to want and buy a plane ticket, right? I'm never going to want to do anything more complex than asking like a series of questions that is no more than two questions. In retrospect, it's kind of crazy how we didn't think of that prior, but sometimes maybe it does take that risk of getting it out there and trying to figure out what can be built around it. Um, that's not to say it's the right way. Maybe you can make an easy argument that that was a vast waste of resources mm. and maybe it should, should have had more, a bit, a bit more of a thoughtful roadmap uh, prior to uh, these, this technology be putting out there in the, in the world. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, now we know. Yeah. Right, and it still exists, and people still use it, just in a in, in a in a in a more compact way. It's utilitarian. It's very utilitarian. Like, wake me up, set a timer, yep, um, and maybe a couple of other uh, you know, a bit more complex things. 
but now we know the, the the role that it plays, at least at this point in time. Um, I'm not sure if this directly answers your question. It does. I have found I'm appalled at my own behavior when I go back and listen to my Alexa voice recordings, which is a thing that they should never have allowed me to do. <laughs> uh, because uh, both myself and my family, including my very small children, uh, speak to this digital assistant in a very dehumanizing way. Not that this, but we have definitely othered Alexa in our house. And when it doesn't do exactly the thing that we want it to do, it's instant anger. Like it's instant frustration. It goes from zero to 60 immediately. And it makes me want to philosophize, like, who am I really then? Like, is that revealing something about me that is latent that I didn't know about? Uh, and it makes me wonder if uh, in, in mass, really, we're just, uh, we all have that sort of hiding below the surface and it's taken this piece of technology to reveal it. Do you believe that we're just inherently evil and that the, the digital assistants are drawing it out of us? I think there is this notion of the uncanny valley, which is actually profoundly human that the most disorienting thing you can have is something that just very nearly seems really human and is just that far off. Like mm. a, a, a joke that you have to sit through that really is not funny and that you feel like you have to affect laughter for the person on the other side. Like these are deeply uncomfortable human things. Yeah. And so I think um, from a commercial perspective, to the extent that there are still companies full of people running companies and there are still customers you're interacting with and connections that you have, when you can assist those authentically – and I think at least transparently with AI. So an example would be for the scale of our business, we're resolving 20 to 25% of our customer service contacts through AI at this point. But we're doing so very transparently, meaning questions that we can't answer through AI, we transparently answer through AI. And part of that answer is, but if you want a real person, we're here to tell us right now. Hmm. And we're pretty good at making sure it's like, I'd rather have an answer in two seconds. That's what you're looking for. But if you really want to talk, we're here to talk. Yeah. That's not super disorienting. Acting like this thing is kind of the real thing. And you have to treat it with, like, you don't have to treat, um, uh, um, you know, a keypad interface in a driveway with the dignity of another person. Sure. And so asking them to, asking a consumer to treat this AI bot that's pretty poorly built as if it were a person with dignity and respect, I think is kind of a false paradigm. Uh, right. So I think perhaps, in that perhaps, yeah. So, so I don't think it's covering some kind of deeper, nefarious, uh, misanthropic nature that we have inside of us that then we tip over. I think you can get frustrated with a you know a soda can that won't open. It doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, until the soda can develops a consciousness on its own and is able to <laughs> enact punitive measures on the the way that you're treating it. Right. We'll attack you. Do, do you agree or, or disagree? I mean, um, you know, from a, let, let, from, from a consumer perspective, the, the, one of the most frustrating things about customer service is when you end up on the phone with a system that is trying to replicate that of a human mm -hmm. voice, human interaction, human way of answering questions. It's just, you're a robot. I know you're a robot. You don't have to try to trick me to think that you're a person because you're just not. Mm -hmm. I would rather hit a series of numbers versus trying to have a conversation in the same way that I'm like typing in a search query into Google. I'm trying to just hit the right keywords to get mm -hmm. you to answer versus me interacting with, with this AI um, uh, as, if, as if you were a human. I, I do love what you've done, Mike, where, where you get to the point where if whatever heuristic you set up to help answer questions quickly is not it and I just want to talk to a human, sure. Like I, you know, sometimes I just want to talk to a human. I mean, I think out of frustration, that's the first thing I say to a human after I get past whatever robot is trying to talk to me. And like, thank God it's a human. Or it took you yeah. a little too long. Can you tell someone, whoever's in charge of your department, that it took too long for me to get to a human? Or mm. I had to Google, how do I speak to yeah. a human? I think there's an entire website. There's that, a whole website. There's a whole website. Yeah, yeah. That, here's the button combination, whatever you get past. It. I think, you know, from an everyday consumer, you know, um, I even, I, I overhear my mother struggling with this when I hang out at her house and she's trying to get through customer service. You know, my mother's the last person in the world that deserves to be um, confused by a poorly programmed AI just to talk to someone to answer a 30-second question, right? Um, and I, I, I hate that, you know, there is a bit more prioritization over improving that bit of it versus maybe counterbalancing that 
with uh, a warmer way of identifying and addressing uh, consumer needs. Hmm. Um, I, I remember that it wasn't, I mean, in my lifetime, there was certainly a time where I can call my bank and talk to a human. I get that to scale that becomes very expensive. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like my feelings towards a brand for which I've received a, you know, altogether or partially negative customer experience because of, you know, not great deployment of AI is just, I don't forget it. Mm. It's to me, it feels the same as like going to a store and having bad customer service. Right. It's like, I just, you, you hold it a grudge a little bit. Your, your, your image of, of yeah. the brand. Yeah. Yeah. But they're putting on a garment that doesn't have enough stitches in the sleeves to hold them together or doesn't hold up under washing. It's like, well, I'm not going to pay for this again. Yeah. Yeah. Why would I? Exactly. exactly. And so if the service is an extension of that, it's like, oh, you're just trying to cheap out on this thing I need from your company. It's no different than getting the buttons on the shirt the right way. Despite an explosion in automation, this past decade of our robot-assisted future has left a lot to be desired. Delivery robots stuck in snow drifts rovers lost on a trail, or having fallen into a hole exclaiming, help me. The robots are taking over, but they are far from replacing human work. On the contrary, they need our help more than ever before. TikTok creator Soupy Garbage Juice recently published a short piece that showed a robot lawnmower hard at work, cutting grass at the Palace of Versailles. Described as a, quote, spiky Roomba, the autonomous lawn-mowing robot diligently trims the lawn at the birthplace of the French Revolution and the site of the end of World War I. Perhaps the next revolution, the singularity, would begin on these hallowed grounds. Well, I'm a grass-eating robot at Le Chateau du Versailles. I don't know jack about in 1789 because my only I so appreciate that you're re- rooting it back into commerce. I I do believe that leading to a point here, so much of what we interact with in search query, um, Alexa is not the only place that we interact with uh, voice search. You know, vo- voice searches uh, uh, proliferated in, into voice typing and so many other things. So a lot of predictive search is being tailored based on our interactions with AIs. I really truly believe, and, and, uh, and our survey respondents believe it as well, the majority believe that their tastes are being shaped by AI. Mm-hmm. Um, they believe that their tastes are being shaped by algorithms that are, uh, that are in every product that they use today. And some of them are more protective of others. Spotify, for instance, very protective of that algorithm because they want it to be very taste-driven uh, for them. The challenge is, is when a lot of our tastes for the things that we buy in this world uh, are shaped by the same algorithms and they become reinforcing functions. Oh, you like this, you must like that. Um, And I believe that it starts to narrow in on things, again, just coming back to uh, our default state and our default way of being. uh, I wonder if a lot of the uh, uh, challenges around, uh, you know, sustainability or, or waste, wastefulness, uh, maybe the rise in, in uh, some of the fast fashion is really just fueled by it is our nature in, in our being to sort of want to consume and consume and consume and consume, and AI is tapping into that and helping reinforce it. Well, I mean, maybe I could start somewhat high level. We need to think about these things in terms of the counterfactual. Um, we need to make a discrete choice between the kind of things we want to do, not kind of throw tomatoes at the things we don't like and what we see. Ooh. I think the counterpoint to the AI is shaping what we're experiencing is an element of somewhat tyrannical or oligarchical editorial authority that would then shape what we're going to see beyond what we would vote on ourselves. The element of everyone watched the MASH finale. Yeah. Because a smoke-filled, literally smoke-filled room of guys in suits in New York decided this is what everybody's going to watch. And the government said there's only three channels that are allowed to go across the public airwaves. And I'm even going to talk about what we consider to be prurient and how many beds are allowed in the bedroom and like real censorship stuff. 
Like that's the counterfactual to just like letting the market decide what they want to watch. Mm. And so I don't think there's a great choice on either one of those, especially when there isn't as homogenous a sense of mores or institutions or things that we are willing to blindly trust with that kind of editorial authority. Wow. So bring it back to then like how you sell coffee. I think because we do a lot of that. If you try to sell one skew to people who like good coffee and like variety in that, you won't create enough lifetime value to run a business. And so we need to sell a variety of new things. I also can't ask people to be curating the kinds of coffees and sending them 40 times a year because now I'm making them do work for us. Well, with the cost of value exploration being pretty high, you can bet that our algorithms get you into a routine. And unless we actually see that that's leading to degradation Mm. in delight, evangelism, loyalty, those kind of things from us – then we're not going to go too far out there trying to get you to try this kind of coffee that's a one in three chance of being really disruptive and a lousy experience for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, if we can weave that harmoniously into what we're doing, then let's make that happen. But you can absolutely bet that there are some elements where we're winnowing this thing down and getting you into a track. Mm-hmm. But part of that's because we've tested the counterfactual and way more people cancel when you jar that thing up. Now, I guess that gets to a point then of you got to be okay with the idea that dopamine's a drug. And <laughs> it, it is. It's just a I drug. Put that on a T-shirt. Yeah. And and there was a point in time. Like, it, as long as you're okay with that, the way you would be. We all drank some wine last night. If we started this podcast by drinking a whole bottle of wine each, it'd be really inappropriate. So wine isn't like <laughs> altogether a problem. It can certainly become a problem. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're wielding these things we're talking about with complete, completely irresponsible velocity in terms of the consumption of dopamine at the core of those things for sure. what people want. There's probably going to be some really cataclysmic consequences because we could also talk about running a business where we just sell tons of cocaine all the time. And I'm sure we could look at all kinds of neat commercial things, but look how good the customer loyalty is and the economics of the last mile. Like It would not be an ethically responsible thing to do. So if you look at it through that lens, you need some things that are not necessarily going to be figured out by each particular company to kind of hem those in with mores mm. if you're going to talk about not just letting the crowd vote on what it's going to see and getting into little rat holes with that stuff. We'll be right back after a word from our partners. This podcast is brought to you by Shopware. Shopware is an e-commerce hub that allows you to offer relevant, compelling experiences for your consumers and your back office team. The open source core and the open commerce approach allows brands to build however they want. Turnkey, headless, PWA, or any combination thereof, thanks to the all sales channels welcome approach. Shopware creates the most engaging experiences imaginable from B2B and B2C to multi-store and guided shopping. And Shopware features a worldwide ecosystem of developers, agencies, and technology partners. Find out more at shopware.com FC. That's shopware.com FC. My pushback to you would be, I tend to agree in the micro and the practical. I question at uh, broadly the recursive human effect of having our own tastes redefine our own tastes. And I think that that is what we have been dealing with over the past five or six years as we become way more polarized in, in, you know, in our society is that we, we're becoming, we are inherently tribal. We just happen to keep finding new tribes to belong to. And I, I, so I'm wondering, Michael, give me, give me some perspectives for you. Like, I, do you believe that there is a, uh, uh, you know, inherent challenge with us, you know, sort of applying AI and machine learning in a taste making fashion and, uh, or, or, or are there ways that it can be inherently bad net net? As a former trend forecaster, and head of innovation at an agency where, where I had clients who, de- who would depend on me to look around corners. This is probably the most interesting and difficult time to be a trend or a future forecaster, especially when it comes to youth lifestyle cha- uh, trends. Um, like TikTok has birthed a thousand communities of trends that go in every sort of direction. Um, and it's very difficult sometimes because it is self-reinforcing and you're not sure which of these trends is relegated to TikTok and social media, or if it actually exists in the real world Mm. and the debate of whether that's a good or bad thing, if it goes one direction or another. It's just, there's so many sub variables that determine whether something is important or not. You have to think, wait, maybe we should just, for the sake of being able to even address the cultural changes that are happening, because a lot of this, you know, 
um, is a reflection of the mood of the of a generation. And you know, if we are kind of protectorates of that generation because we're able to enact uh, policy and whatever, like you have to get a gauge on, on on what young people are thinking as expressed by what they're wearing and what they're doing. If you can't really get a sense of that because the dominant form of social media is encouraging the proliferation of microtrends that really aren't a reflection, but they send a smoke signal, um, then you might have something that's a bit problematic on your hands. I'm, and I'm not saying that like going through social media should be any sort of like leaning indicator for how policymakers should um, um, uh, see the uh, the mood of an entire generation or, or a populace, but, but it, it counts and it, it matters. From a commercial perspective, it makes it extremely difficult for brands to be able to forecast what patterns and materials they should be investing in like 18, 24 months ahead of time. Because there was a point in time where the editors at the big fashion magazines and um, things like Pantone and WGSN and, and whoever, they would, you know, more or less kind of push and pull and, and, and kind of dictate what is and will be important to a certain extent. Obviously, it's an interplay with culture. Uh, but now you're seeing those companies sort of have to reconfigure their ways of working to accommodate for this new reality where, and I, I'm, it sounds like I'm picking on TikTok, but I just think it's so it's so dominant right now, right. and it's so yeah. black box, and it's so effective. Yeah. I'm sure as users of TikTok, and we might have kids that are on TikTok, and it's just like that to me is the singular example of how much a strong algorithm can affect society at large. I can't walk through a mall without like bumping into three sets of teenagers like dancing in front of the camera, right? And that's that's real world behavior. So I'm curious because you understand these aesthetics way better than I do. I'm a, I'm a luddite when it comes to some of these things. Um, how do you handicap the potential downsides of that against something like when you go back now and watch this Netflix documentary about the history of Abercrombie and Fitch, mm. where like the absence of that is necessarily complemented by the other point of just yeah, but it was these. Six pretty monstrous people just saying, hey, yeah. you're all going to wear plaid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Deal yeah. with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Okay. Um, do you believe that there is coffee that is objectively better than other coffee or do you think that it's all subjective based on palate and exp lived experiences and, and, and what have you? It's totally in the eye of the beholder. Totally in the eye of the beholder. But you can say that there is coffee that is – more X, Y, Z than whatever. There's bad coffee in the world as well, right? We yes. can say that, right? Uh, now – Apply that to pop culture and fashion. It, are there styles that are objectively better than others that exist at the same time in the marketplace? Or is, or is it in the eye of the beholder? Or is it subjective, lived experiences, whatever? There was a certain point in time where you didn't really have to think for yourself too much because you can rely on the editorial prowess or bias or just authority of, you know, Anna Wintour and her contemporaries who run the fashion magazines that basically dictated what American style and fashion would be. Um, that's all falling apart to a large extent. They're still around, they're still influential, but, you know, to a much less extent. Without there being a guide to what is good and for the question of is some, can something be objectively better than something else, kind of up in the air in part because – we know that there's an infinite number of available styles and there are – at any given point, we might be exposed to 500 trends that maybe five years ago we wouldn't have been aware of because they haven't been expressed in the short-form video um, uh, social media platform. It's just – it creates confusion and it makes it very unpredictable to know in which directions – culture will run. And then the secondary effects of that effect on culture will directly affect things like commerce. Maybe a third order effect is affects things like policy. This episode is brought to you by Klaivu. Klaivu captures e-commerce shoppers intent and then leverages AI to create personalized search and discovery experiences that allow your brand to go beyond keywords typed into the search box. Klaivu's end-to-end search and discovery solution is easy to configure, optimize, and maintain for all major shopping platforms in just hours. Klaivu's proprietary technology is driving traffic and conversion and loyalty for over 3,000 leading global brands. Check them out today at Klaivu, that's K-L-E-V-U dot com. Visions is brought to you by Yachtpo. 
an e-commerce marketing platform that helps online businesses win customers for life with interconnected solutions for reviews, SMS marketing, loyalty programs, and more. With Yotpo, brands like Steve Madden, Brooklinen, Quip, and Love Wellness are able to create innovative experiences that boost customer loyalty and repeat purchases. Join Yotpo in keeping commerce on the cutting edge by downloading the Visions Report today. Visit yotpo.com slash visions. That's Y-O-T-P-O dot com slash visions. I don't want to dive into politics, but this whole like libs of TikTok thing that has become quite an issue is like that's another that that's another expression of how exposure and refinement of an algorithm that is basically you're you're in your own echo chamber mm-hmm. can really affect the way that you think about yeah. things outside of that 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 uh, initial subject matter, right? So so when I see things like the uptick in like Adderall prescriptions or something, because that's been made so available yeah, so, in part right. because of the way that TikTok can be gamed in a certain way to amplify that message, which, you know, ostensibly could be seen as a good thing because, okay, you're talking about mental health out in the open, but there's uh, kind of an underlying kind of message there that, oh, you can easily address this by uh, doing this direct-to-consumer kind of uh, uh, pharmaceutical thing. It's like, I, I think that's net-net not a great thing, right? Well, I guess the, the point the thing, I'm trying to jeer at, and it is yeah. interesting and that this exists yeah. in this kind of tripartite, like, us as a society, all the way down to like just hard commerce stuff. Yeah, there is an element where even when imperfect, mores take a very long time to build, and they're very very quickly ruptured. Yeah, and from a standing on the shoulders of the giants perspective, like you need to be able to build on those things being taken for granted to make some of those kind of progress things mm-hmm. and those efficiency things you're talking about. The notion of those things being predictable. And so I guess the, the interesting piece here is that when we talk about like this dystopian sort of like, well, this AI future, we're all going to get pushed around, this and that. Like, the alternative to that has to be an institution with enough trust and credibility that we're willing to let them become tastemakers, editors of newspapers, curators of fashion, pickers of coffee, oh, those ta- kind of you're, things. You're talking about a return to the monoculture, which – is that even possible anymore? I'm not genies out of the bottle. Well, I do think the genies out of the bottle, but I guess the question is if we're asking about the problem with our robot future, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at some point, the the counterpoint to that robot deciding, well, you are all voting with your dollars. I'll, yeah. I'll show you what you'd like to buy. Yeah. Is someone going, no, this is what's for sale. Yeah. Buy it or don't. It's going to require a lot of trust for those kind of systems to emerge as a prevailing option against what you're positioning this whole conversation around, which is, hey, unchecked, we're all just going to get down these infinite loops that we find ourselves in. Uh, and and uh, you said stand on the shoulders of giants. I, I would say maybe like, you know, uh, tread on the casualties of war. I, I, I think that there's a, a challenge here where uh, – uh, consider the the last two years that we all just collectively lived, and I don't know that we've really have understood or will understand for a long time the psychological impacts on very young children yeah. who have had to sit in distance learning for hours upon hours upon hours a day. And in my own experience with my children, there is a distractibility that comes along with it that's not inherent in being in person and in a classroom and having the social norm of everyone sitting and heads up paying attention. And what I have experienced is that my children's tastes were shaped directly in that period of time by YouTube kids and, and yeah. by, and, and by the other, uh, 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 various games platforms and that they became, they became much more, uh, aware that there are sort of rabbit holes that they can fall down into mm-hmm. and to where, to the point that they're aware now that they have trained something like YouTube. They are yeah. aware now that their experience of YouTube is very different to their friends. And that is not a comforting thing for, for them because they never lived through a world where there was a monoculture. For them, it's like, why don't I have the same experience as someone else? Mm-hmm. And that in itself is very isolating. So for us, it might be refreshing. We've lived through a world that was different. For them, their experience is, I, there is no collective we. I don't have that we. I'm not living that we. There is only me. And I think that that can be, in and of itself, it's objectively kind of terrifying, yeah. is that they're all having their own little 
perspective in the world if, if and when, because for many years, their only window into the world was through a computer screen. Um, and that's the thing that I feel like when it comes back to commerce, uh, you're talking about nicheification, Michael, the, um, uh, we, I don't think know how to reckon with the idea that we have to sort of deliver on some kind of now heightened expectation that we can talk to all of those things all at once. It's yeah. not just about brands and forecasting. It's about even just delivering digital experience. There's no personalization platform that's capable of doing this. There's no CDP that can power this. There's, there's no stack, right? Right. You can't algorithm your way out of it. No, but we definitely algorithmed our way into it. Exactly. Sometimes we either think of history being kind of like straight line degradation, straight line teleological up into the right. I think of it as a pendulum. Or it can be a straight line with some aberrations sure, that are sure. unrelated to one another. Like, is it even a line graph or is it just a scatter? <laughs> right? Uh, and I guess my, my point with that is, let's take Italy in the 19th century as an example. Okay? Um, we talk about tribalism and, and all those mm-hmm. kind of – like, that was a country that from a geographic and sort of a Roman institution's perspective, very, very ancient. From a country perspective, very, very incipient, very, very young. And – they have this notion of campanilismo, that society is literally night and day different from the earshot of one campanile or bell tower to another. <laughs> and in World War I, it was the first time you brought all these different people called Italians into the same place. They literally could not understand each other. Most of them spoke languages that were more different from one another than Spanish is from French or, or, or uh, from Spanish is from Italian. So you – it could argue that we saw an aberrational element of monoculture and these kind of things that we're trying to harken back to that we're saying we're moving away from, that if you see it more as a, of an aberration than us going on a different course, you could find where this is heading by looking into the past in terms of, well, what was Italian society like in 1845, where you have someone from rural a Campania near Naples, someone from the city in Modena, like <laughs> how different are they? Is there anything in common with those folks? How are their tastes shaped when these are completely different and fragmented experiences? There is no shared. We all watch whatever Cheers or Frasier or sort of, you know, like. <laughs> but, 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 but there was a lot of naivete, right? Like there, there, there wasn't an awareness that there was a multitude of communities that were so different from yours outside of your immediate surroundings, right? So unlike the experience that is being lived by Phillips kids, yeah. um, where you know you're very aware that you might belong to a couple of subcultures that my friends don't, so that that um, that dissociation is what creates that kind of like feeling of unease, mm. right? Uh, that's maybe the difference. That availability of information is the difference between now and you know. 19th century Italy, but totally hear what you're saying where maybe, maybe, um, uh, traditional broadcast media is the, uh, uh, the outlier and the aberration, the monoculture that I created, uh, in like, you know, post-World War II America and the West is, 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 is more the exception to the rule. Yeah. Like I remember Robert Dahl had a thing on the writing of the Declaration of Independence that it was implicitly tyrannical Mm. at some point from a sovereignty perspective, it was supposed to be we, the States. And they just decided, nope, it's we, the people. Yeah. And I'm speaking on behalf of everybody. Mm. This is what we all agree to. And it was ultimately somewhat tyrannical because the commission of the people that went to Philadelphia was to write about we the states. And so I think there is a dark side to those things that we do see as unifying, mm. which is they tend to have some sort of pretty strong editorial, perhaps even tyrannical authority associated with them to be able to set those standards in place. And I guess my point of jousting with you on that yeah. is when we think about AI – the counterpoint to letting the system just run the algorithm unchecked is that someone has to put guardrails on that. And when you look at the craziest, scariest parts of AI, like going to a machine that now you can say, write me 20 pages about um, the life of a sea turtle in the style of Ernest Hemingway, and it will do it really well. Well, now you have to hem that in with, but don't talk about this, and this is immoral, and don't put those things on. There's going to be some editorial authority on that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think as we all implement that in our businesses, I hope the stakes are way lower, (laughs) but we're going to reckon with those kind of same dynamics. Let's, uh, so you're, you're actually natu- naturally gravitating to our last point, which is uh, how do things like art 
uh, and information that is generated from machine learning uh, begin to reinform the way that we interpret the world. Uh, here's a good example. Dolly is this new. Uh, oh God, mind blowing. Yeah, it's this new uh, generative art uh, AI engine that is a variant of GPT three, and uh, it can, uh, you know, generate images in mass uh, based on text uh, uh, commands. Um, it is kind of incredible. Uh, when you look at, you know, uh, a prompt like, you know, an, uh, a chair in the shape of an avocado, it's going to give you six million variant variations of that. Uh, I, I'm curious how that begins to shape our perspective on like if generative art in that way is then sort of delineated or devalued or seen as other something else, um, or if we begin to mimic it, right? If there is some sort of human nature for us to sort of engage in mimetics and say, this is what, this is what is connecting, or this is what, uh, uh, like we will reinterpret that in our own way and make it very human. That becomes a really interesting cycle of, of reinterpretation of something that it ultimately learned from us to begin with. Now we're learning from it. I haven't encountered a technology, much less an AI, that has stunned me to the degree that the output of Dolly 2 uh, works of art have. Um, incredible, incredible stuff. Mm. Um, and in a way, because it's generative and it's not, you know, it's not super sharp and precise, it's not meant to be. It, 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 some of the images, uh, it, it's, it's as if you're looking into someone's mind while they're having a dream, right? right? Which makes it, if there was an uncanny valley representation in uh, generative art, I think this would be it because it's like, oh man, that that feels like I'm looking into a dream memory or something like that, which makes it pretty terrifying mm -hmm. uh, in a way. And I think that is such a provocative question of you know the outputs are a combination of billions of inputs generated by humans, but in turn, even the aesthetics of the output I can see very easily be um, applied to. Uh, things in the commercial sphere. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's like it's 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 just so bizarre to to even to even think about. And it kind of hit us like a truck, right? Like I know that type of AI has been developed and refined over the past decade, but this is the first time that we've seen it uh, put out there in in such a way. Whereas like other things that we've been worrying and talking about for so long, like AR, VR, like voice and stuff, it's like it's been like a slow crawl, and then there's product and whatever. It's like Dolly Two is like, oh, this is possible. What are the ramifications? going to be, uh, you know, question about art. Yeah, there will be, there probably will be a branch of artists who are just like, I am directly inspired by the output of this AI. Um, and then their, their output will just be fed back into the machine. Yeah, I'm from Philadelphia and the, the historic buildings around Independence Hall one of them is Carpenter's Hall. And at the time, Carpenter's actually were some of the wealthiest artists and tradespeople in the colonies because they had these very artful crown moldings that they put in all that kind of that era of revolutionary architecture, or colonial architecture as we call it. And it was just an extraordinarily differentiated thing that you could make that molding set and you had a shop, almost like when you hear about Michelangelo's shop or something like that, his assistants made this thing, it was part of his, his shop that was doing that. And then it became commoditized. Anybody can, you know, uh, yeah. what do you call it? Toll Brothers can throw up couple thousand homes with the same crown molding set, right? And what we replaced that with were forms of things that we found scarcity and value in that could not have possibly been comprehended in that time. And so I think it's very scary to look at the exhaustive set of all the things we can comprehend, seeing something that does seem to have real credible scarcity, and then watching it go away. Because you feel like then it's going to be replaced with nothingness. Hmm. But it's possible that this is the one time history is different. Or it's possible that the kinds of things that become less scarce because of GPT-3 mm -hmm. are replaced with things that become scarce that we couldn't have possibly comprehended in our current situation. And I think it's going to be <laughs> – sometimes it's, it's done in a way that's very interesting. If you analogize that to World War I, it can be done in a way that's very cataclysmic when mm -hmm. you have those kinds of epochal shift things. And there's no question that this is going to be one of those big shift things if GPT-3 kind of outputs are a part of our day-to-day -day lives. I personally haven't experienced GPT-3 with the kind of weight or gravity that I think a lot of folks that I, you know, in my in my social circles have. I I look at the twenty paragraph essay it generates and I'm like, eh, that's okay. 
I don't read 20 paragraph essays that other people write anyway. So what is the matter? <laughs> like, what does it matter if, <laughs> if the computer generated it or not? Um, I, I, I tend to wonder if there are ideas that can, you know, begin to alter the way that we're perceiving the world that maybe could be enlightening. Like it doesn't all have to be shitty robot future. It could be inspiring robot future. Um, I, I, I just, I believe there are questions worth asking because as we reinterpret it, you know, I, I can see an application in particular from, you know, Dolly um, is being used in, in a way to, uh, well, do, do we need to shoot every single colorway? Like, do we need to shoot every single, do we need to shoot lifestyle in 30 locations? Like, no, not anymore. Uh, and that maybe leads us back to our first point is like, what is the human impact, right? Is, is there, there a creativity uh, angle of the artist who actually like makes all of that work or meaningful work for an artist or model who are then displaced by this, you know, generative algorithm? These are all, I think, impacts that have sort of circular questions mm -hmm. that nobody really has an answer to yet, um, but they do affect commerce. Uh, any last thoughts? What did you just call, uh, uh, not this dystopian future, but... Inspiring robot. Inspiring robot future. I like that better than shitty robot yeah. future. Next time on Visions. Being a retailer of a brand, there are a number of different um, pressures that I think they have to um, address. But in doing so, it'll only make them stronger companies. It'll only make consumers want to shop with them more. Um, and I think that's got to be a good thing. It, it's, it's difficult. It's added another layer of complexity to being just, you know, I'm a merchant. All I do is buy and sell stuff. No, not anymore. Not anymore. You can't say that. I wish all of my CPG clients operated more on like the agile method and, and focused a little bit more on their product like engineers and iterated rather than committed to one vision unfailingly. But that is really true that it is a, such a signaling device to say, especially when you are raising money or you are trying to explain to investors how your business is going to continue to grow, a piece of software can almost make or break um, what might be a tiny percentage point of a margin. The Visions Podcast is brought to you by Future Commerce. You can find more episodes of this podcast and all Future Commerce properties at futurecommerce.fm. Download our 100-page companion guide on cultural and consumer trends by visiting visions.report. That's visions.report.